Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, hosting you once again for a conversation about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Here at Gateway, we were recently able to host Dr. J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and the pastor of Summit Church in North Carolina for a on-campus experience. Part of that meeting was a leadership luncheon and interview, and I'd like to play some of that for, for you today as our podcast. It's an insightful conversation about leadership and what it means to not only provide leadership in a denomination, but also leadership in a significant church. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here for the leadership luncheon and the interview that I'm going to do uh, with uh, JD. For those of you who are our guests today who have not been to one of these, we do these about three times a semester where we have chapel speakers stay after. We have uh, some kind of quick luncheon and give me a chance to interview them and get some more insight from them, particularly more broadly about leadership and about other issues that we might want to address that weren't able to be done and uh, addressed in the chapel. Uh, first of all, let's just say thank you again to J.D. Greer for coming our way. I mean, this is awesome. And I, I am so glad that he finally figured out that if he'd pay his own way, I'd let him come. And so that, that, that how come nobody laughed when I said it? Okay. Yeah, there you go. You people are forgetting who bought the lunch. Okay, come on now. Let's get with the program here. Anyway, so my opportunity now is to get a chance to just ask J.D. about some broader issues related to leadership, Southern Baptist Convention, different things like that. So uh, let's, uh, let's uh, get at it. First of all, J.D., um, I, I made the comment in the chapel, you know, you're the pastor of a very large and influential church, and you didn't have enough to do, so we elected you president of Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, tell us why you felt God wanted you to do that and what that has meant to you to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, well— Are we on? We're good? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was first approached by um, a couple of older men in the convention, uh, Ken Witten, uh, Bryant Wright, men that I would consider to be um, uh, mentors, and they just really sensed it was time, and so there was definitely a, like a divine leadership in it. Um, for me, it was sort of a, well, actually, l l let, me, let me bring in my wife here, because I thought her perspective on it was good. Um, whatever my sins and faults are, um, there are many, but hers are kind of the opposite, Meaning, um, if I'm ambitious, um, she would be very content. Right. And uh, so she has no <laughs> desire. You know, and she used to tell me, she's like, J.D., listen, there's nothing there except for heartache. And there's nothing there except for frustration. Uh, she has one of the greatest little one-liners that she uses on me about fame. She said, fame is making yourself accessible to a bunch of people you don't really care about at the expense of those that you do. And she's like, your quality of life is going to go down, not up. And so anytime there was any of this hint, like, well, what if I did this or something? She was always kind of trying to pull me back. But um, the more we prayed through it, the more we realized that um, that our missionaries in particular uh, overseas, you know, to use William Carey's analogy, they dangle on the end of a rope. And William Carey told the English Baptist before he left, if I agree to dangle on the end of the rope there for you in India, I need you to promise to hold securely to the other side. And my wife came to me one day and she said, she said, it just feels like, because we just gotten word that our team, in, it's not being recorded, is it? Our team in, in, in that part of the world had had to move for the third time in like a year because of some bomb. And she's like, it just, it's wrong for us to ask them to do that and us not to be willing to put up with the ridiculous pulpit and pen, pen blog, you know, if that's what we have to, if that's our part of the cross to bear, then then they can deal with bombs and we'll do a pulpit and pen and, and, and we should be thankful about that. That's a good word. 
You've been president over almost two years. Uh, two questions. What has surprised you about being president that you didn't expect? And what has uh, saddened you about being president? So surprise is positive, right? Could be. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, um, I'll flip it. I, I was going to also ask a third question. I'll just ask them all three. I want to know what surprised you, what saddened you, and maybe what's made you proud or happy. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll see if I can come up with three different things. Um, so what surprised me is, and I hope that you'll take my, my word for this, is the genuine unity that Southern Baptists have around the things that matter. Um, you know, if you pay attention to the Twitterverse, you pay attention to social media, man, you feel like things are, it's like a dumpster fire. And then I get to these, even like more traditional state conventions, not talking like, you know, cutting edge like out here in California, but, you know, if I'm in, I don't know, I don't want to say it because it'll get recorded, but, um, you know, if I'm at one of these places and I go in and, the, and just the sense of unity, excitement about the gospel, gospel above all, about evangelism and mission. Most um, people are uh, genuinely annoyed at those voices that seem to just delight in division and seem to desire to you know, kind of segue us off into conversations that don't really matter, or at least to have conversations at a tone that you know, distract us from our, our unity in the Great Commission. Um, and that's been, it's, it's been pleasantly surprising. I've, I've been very encouraged by it. Going into the convention last year, I thought it was going to be a uh, just a, a dumpster fire, a circus. And I got there and I was like, this is everybody's genuinely right. united. Um, the flip side of that, what saddened me is um, those voices that are really, really loud and seem to have an outsized influence that really do seem to be used by, I mean, dare I say, our enemy to distract us from the Great Commission. We've got a gospel that's too urgent a great commission that is too important to let all these secondary things stand in our way. And, and you just, you listen, whether it's whatever platform they're using, whether it's, I mean, you know, again, Twitter blogs, documentaries they put out, it's just, you know, it's just kind of like, guys, it, you know, it, and then you get close to it and you realize it's like the wizard of Oz, you know, it's remember the wizard of Oz, you get this big booming voice. You pull up with the curtains, a little scrawny old man. That's what half these things are like. You're like that. That's it. It's just you. Um, and, and that's kind of how I felt. So that's been a positive and negative. And what's made me proud um, has been the willingness of the convention. And, again, I mean not everybody, but the vast majority of congregation members and leaders who, um, who have said, hey, when it comes to racial sin, when it comes to acknowledging where we've, we've missed the mark as churches when it comes to sexual abuse, um, Rather than think about the the reputation of our institution, we're going to think about the good of the people. That's that's been very encouraging. That's awesome. Yeah, I like what you said there at the beginning. I, I was speaking in Louisiana yesterday, and a pastor came up to me and said, "What do you think about this?" And he was referring to one of these co popular uh, controversial things that's popped up about Southern Baptists lately. And I looked back at him and said, "Do you want my frank answer?" He said, "Yes." And I said, "I don't care." And he was kind of shocked, and I said, I just don't care because I can't think of any reason that what you're to ask me about has anything to do with getting the gospel to two billion people who have never heard of Jesus. And he smiled and said, thank you for saying that. And he, he, he was just so relieved that I wasn't going to add to the fire that I would talk about the gospel with him. So right. that, that underlying unity and that underlying commitment to the gospel is real in people's lives in yep. Southern Baptist life, and that's a good thing. Hey, you just mentioned in that question and answer, uh, your work with the Sexual Abuse uh, Advisory Group. And I'd like to ask you several questions about that. And first of all, I'd just like for you to ask, or for me to ask you 
uh, or I'd like to ask you, how did that come about that you formed that group? Uh, what, what, what precipitated that? And why did you choose to make that the vehicle by which you try to address this issue as a president? Well, it was obvious. And, and oh, by the way, I think that, that you've done a good job with that. I'm trying to set you up to say so, okay? Yeah. For me to say that I've done a good yes, job of that? Okay, yes, thanks. And your wife um, can tell you that, uh, yeah. Yeah, go yeah. Ahead, yeah. Well, actually, ironically, my, um, one of the things that my wife endured the first year of the presidency, the second year, she said, she says, while there are many leaders that could lead and no, God, nobody's indispensable, she sees how there are some unique things that are in our history um, that have allowed us to be able to enter in this conversation. And she says, it's just apparent that you were at least prepared by God for this moment. Um, it, it's definitely wasn't something that when I first put my name in the nomination, um, that was a dominant thing. It's not why I did it. That we were already hearing rumors of it enough to know that there was a genuine problem. And so we had started to talk with the ERLC, Philip Bethencourt, um, Russ Moore, and just say, we need to come up with a plan. So we, we were ready to go when I got elected. That was that discussion had already happened. Who could have you know, who could have, have, have figured that what later that same several months later you were gonna have some of these articles that exposed just how how bad the problem really is. It shouldn't have surprised us, y'all, because I mean Jesus said that um, you know, we always thought that our good theology would make us immune to that. That's a Catholic problem. Um, but, you know, Jesus said that, that with his sheep, there would be shepherds that would come in that didn't have the interests of the flock. And, and of all people, we should have known. Um, so that's where that conversation came from. It, they, you know, a few of the newspaper articles poured nitrous on it. Um, we, by God's grace, were able to uh, get on this group some of the leading voices, not just in the SBC, but I would say in the nation. And not just even in Christian circles. Uh, these They are Christians, but um, whether it was on the care side, the prevention side, the law enforcement side, the legal side, these people sat in a room and just said, this is what it would look like to be serious about this. What we really quickly learned, and maybe, I hope I'm not getting your next question, is we learned that um, Southern Baptist way, and uh, I say this is one of us, but our way is to make big, loud, forceful declarations and feel like that deals with the problem. You know, we just say it loud at the convention, pass a resolution, man, we can put that in the rearview mirror. And just like it is with, for example, racial reconciliation, yeah, that's a great start. It's a great start to acknowledge some things in the past. But you don't just go from acknowledgement to, you know, a solution. It takes intentionality. It takes a, a journey. And we recognized that this was not going to be something that was passed in a resolution, and that seemed to be what I kept getting from certain people is like, well, we, 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 we're going to pre we're going to say it this year, and it's like it's going to take a culture change. A culture change takes several years to kind of infuse, and so we deliberately didn't call it a task force, called it an advisory group because a task force implies a task that has a completion date. Uh, culture change isn't a task. And I thank you for that last statement. You corrected me on that once in a meeting privately when I called it the task force, and you you made that good point to me, and I appreciated that then. And I think that's a good catch today and a good a good a, a good word today. Well, as you look at what the the uh, advisory group has been able to accomplish, uh, what are some of the best progress points you've seen in how we're dealing with this issue in the Southern Baptist Convention? And then what do we still need to do to improve as we go? As you you know, you're going out of being president, but what needs to carry on and as we keep working on this problem? Yeah, no, that's a good question. The, um, well, we go back to the thing I said was pleasantly surprising. It was surprising to see how many of our state conventions, how many of our local associations, um, how many of our entities. I mean, we're, we're nearing 100 percent on all those things that said we'll take responsibility for this in our area. 
and they have developed, uh, they've taken the curriculum that we put out, the Carrying Well Challenge, and they have said, we're going to be responsible for uh, things here. Um, that's been encouraging. It's now beginning to have what I would call kind of second wave stuff, which is, um, hey, we need to make this part of the ACP, for example. Uh, the ACP is your annual church profile. Um, you can't ask everything about a church on an ACP, so what are the essential things you've got to ask? Well, we feel like at this particular cultural moment, that's something we need to ask and say, are you, is your church up to date on these things? Uh, so things like that, requiring background checks for trustees, th that sort of thing, that's just all part of you know, kind of infusing this culture. Here's one that we're working on now, which is the Executive Committee and the Great Commission Council are, are wanting to come up with an ordination guide that would, in addition to other things, make sure that future Southern Baptist pastors and leaders um, know that this is an issue and this is how you deal with it. That you know, one of the biggest problems over the last 20 or 30 years, um, let me caveat, there have been some people who have deliberately you know, hid and abused the system. But for a lot of people, it's that they just they don't know what to do. And they don't know that some things are not only immoral, they're also illegal. And to say that, you know, Brother Barry over here that did this thing, that we can't just handle that internally because, you know, we all love and, and believe in him. Uh, that, you know, that you know, this is why God gave us law enforcement. We need to get that involved. So helping pastors understand that. So those are sort of where it is now. This credentials committee um, that's formed is at least, you know, for us, the, um, the beginnings of how to, how to hold accountable. We do believe in church autonomy. Uh, you know, it's one of the things that makes Southern Baptist Southern Baptist. I don't. I'm not embarrassed about autonomy. I. I mean, I, I live. I think it's a very important New Testament principle. But we know that autonomy doesn't mean um, should never be used to excuse a lack of accountability. And if we're going to be accountable as a covenant group coming together, uh, then we have to take that seriously and not just say we're not going to pay any attention to it. That's excellent. Good job. Okay, and let's shift focus here. I want to ask you some pastoral questions. First of all, uh, you're a pastor. You could have done anything else, and you are a gifted man. You could do many other things. Why do you want to be a pastor, and why does it matter that you've remained a pastor these years? Well, um, depends on what day of the week you ask me. I could give you a different answer. I'm glad you're asking me today. But, um, uh, the yeah, I mean, my first calling was to make disciples, and uh, I did that uh, first, really, as a youth pastor in Southeast Asia. I mean, excuse me, youth pastor in, in South Florida. Uh, then I served with Don and Ann Dent in Southeast Asia. Uh, I forgot they were here, but they were my, but no, they were my boss. They were my boss's 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 boss. And, uh, but, you know, did that. And then I, um, when I was involved in college ministry, uh, I was studying to go into law. And um, things were, I mean, things were opening, the doors were opening there. But I just, I started to teach the Bible. And I felt like I was enduring my law stuff. And I just love seeing people come to Jesus. I, I really look at what I do now in front of, you know, whatever, 10, 11,000 people is just another version of what I used to do with two and then 10. You're just making disciples. Uh, in fact, I will tell you, for those of you guys that want to be pastors or ladies that want to be, you know, Bible teachers, um, uh, my favorite people to listen to are not pure exegetes. They're leaders, disciple makers. I'd rather hear a disciple maker leads me through a text than I would hear somebody that's just you know, an expert at the Greek and the Hebrew, not that that's not important, but that's really what we're doing as, as, as pastors is we're making disciples and mobilizing the church to be responsible with the text, but lead people. And I hope if you could say I preached like anything, it would be like I preach like a disciple maker. Um, and that's, you know, right now the vehicle I do that in is, is as a pastor. I hope by God's grace, the only thing that will take me away from that is maybe to go back to Southeast Asia. Uh, my wife who grew up Presbyterian didn't really get the whole missions thing because 
Um, well, they just didn't. And uh, but she, you know, she is convinced. She's convinced that we will end our ministry um, like over on the mission field with with Muslims. So hopefully that'll be the transition from pastor to that. Well, one of the things we're doing here at Gateway is elevating the call to be a pastor and the responsibility of being a pastor. And one of the things we try to balance out here is a lot of times pastors talk about the hard parts, the bad parts, the war stories, the difficulties. So let me ask you this question. What's the best part about being a pastor? What have you enjoyed about it the most and made it such a really fulfilling life that you've lived? Um, yeah, I, there are two things that just come to mind. Um, one is, I mean, you, you, you've heard the statement that um, if you do what you love, then you'll never feel like you work a day in your life. Um, I started out with gift envy, like most pastors do. I was looking at two or three guys and thought I needed to be just like them and had to learn that God had designed me in a, in a unique way, like he designs all of you, and you got to figure out what that is and, and not try to be somebody else. And so it probably took me, because I am kind of a slow learner on this and because I'm just a fairly envious person by, by nature, it took me about a decade to figure out this is how God shaped me. And so um, I love writing messages um, for people. I love uh, doing that. I love doing it for our people. I mean, I love being here too, but, I mean, I, I, I get about one-tenth the amount of enjoyment out of being preaching to you all as awesome as that was as I do just preaching week by week at the summit church it's it's what I, I, I that would be like a part of me that would I just feel like die and if I inherited 10 billion dollars next week I would just keep doing it you know at the same pace that I'm doing it um, I love watching leaders um, multiple I love watching them raised up there's and there was a sense in which uh, this is cliche but uh, you know you get more joy out of your children and your grandchildren's successes than you do your own and that applies to ministry as well um, you know, so it, you know this, and um, hopefully this is not too transparent, but um, a lot of pastors look at, like, Outreach Magazine like a scoreboard. They, they produce a, a thing every year, the 100 fastest growing churches, and so you're getting, you're like, did we make it, you know, on this year? And so, um, you know, I do that. So I, I was like, are, are we on here this year? And uh, I noticed that we, I, those, a, few, a few years ago, we were like, I don't know, somewhere in the high 40s or whatever. Um, and so I look up, and uh, one of our associate pastors says, look at that right there, and he um, he pointed to a church that we had planted about four years ago, and it was number 11 um, that had grown. And and I was like, I had two thoughts. First of all, was I was like, that cocky punk, I know that he's just feeling awesome now. Yeah, I feel like I feel like the dad who, who'd just been beaten by his middle school kid for first time at basketball. But the other part of me was just this sense of like, man, like he's outgrowing and outpacing us. And every weekend now that I you know stand up to preach, I realize that there are almost almost double the amount of people that are in church at places we planted than are even right there in front of me. And that's, that's deeply, deeply fulfilling. You've talked a lot about your commitment to evangelism and missions, and we certainly know that you preach that. You've established a culture of that at Summit Church. Can I get you to go one level below that now? Not the preaching about it or establishing the culture that you've put into place, but as you think about uh, the, the programming or the sort of the how-to-do-it type answer, Talk to us, uh, particularly pastoral leaders in the room, about how do you lead your church to be more evangelistic, and how do you lead your church to be more committed to missions? So, again, pardon the cliche, but um, I, it really is impossible to lead in something you're not excited about yourself. Um, and so, whether it's your own evangelism stories, that's one of the reasons that I'm committed, even when my kids are young. I, I'm unfortunately not able to go on all the mission trips I want to go on, but it is a matter of principle that for my wife and I that I go on a fairly you know, regular basis at least once a year so that I can just see and, and so I can sense what's going on in the field. Um, the relationships that it's easy 
especially as your church gets bigger, to just back away from. Like the guys at the gym I work out with are not impressed with me. Uh, people at the Summit Church, they can be impressed with me. People at – they just are like, that's a guy that can't even front squat his own body weight. What's wrong with that dude? You know, so um, – but but they are just – you know, I've had recently a couple things that have just energized my faith by watching God work in the life of this one individual that, uh, you know, have, have, have fired me up more than, than what I've seen at the church at large. And so, you know, uh, that uh, I think has been a key part of it. And leading that is just leading out of your own passions and making sure that that flame is – is burning bright. I would say um, there is, I'm sure you've heard the concept, the trellis and the vine. The vine is the organic growth. The trellis is kind of how you facilitate that. I do think churches need trellises for evangelism. Simply good sermons and, you know, a passionate preacher is not going to do it. Uh, you got to have the right models. You got to have, the, I always call them, I think of it like as Tom, T-O-M, tools, opportunities, and model. If you want to create an evangelist, the trellis part of that is you got to have a, a fairly standardized tool. Um, and for us, we use the bridge. It's not that brilliant, um, but it's the bridge concept. Um, our people hear me explain the gospel in the ways that I expect them to sit. They hear me three or four times, or well, let's say once a month. I'm, I'm walking. And so, 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 so there's a standard way, um, opportunities. I grew up doing door-to-door. I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, that was literally the independent Baptist church I grew up in. That was your first act of sanctification. Right. I got saved on a Friday. We went soul winning on a Wednesday because that's just what you did. Um, if you died today, are you 100% sure that you you know, go to heaven um, or die tonight? You never die in the day. You always die at night. Um, but, uh, un, you know, we recognize that, that, that in today's culture, probably especially out here, that's not really effective because you can't even get close to people's doors anymore. There's uh, stuff there. And uh, people just don't receive the gospel from strangers, right? You know, whether it's a stranger in the mailbox or a stranger as an advertisement. But um, so it's not as if, but what we've lost is that oper- that's where I learned to share the gospel was in, you know, standing on people's doorsteps. And then it gave me the ability to do it one-on-one when I'm with the guy at the gym. So we've struggled to figure out what's that look like in, in our culture right now. Our college students do it great. I mean, they just go do the traditional surveys and beach reaches and all that things. Um, we don't have, I'll just freely admit, as great a, an opportunity for normal people other than sending them on a mission trip. Um, for some reason, we get them to raise $3,500 and go overseas to learn to do what we've been trying to tell them to do in the United States, and they seem to be grateful for that. Right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, all that to say is, is we need some of those opportunities, and then you need models. So. You also just mentioned about sending people uh, on mission trips. Tell us about how you're doing that, and I think I'm correct in this, that your church currently has more members under appointment by the International Mission Board than any other single church in the SBC. So. You're not only sending people on mission trips, but somehow you're producing large numbers of missionaries who are going in career appointments roles. What are some things you're doing, again, besides preaching culture, what are some things you do to raise the level of commitment to missions in your church family? Well, I don't want to just go past the preaching and culture too quickly, because while I think that I understand what you're saying with that, is culture really is like, I mean, Peter Drucker late Peter Drucker, he's culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what happens is you go to these conferences and you hear somebody doing something that you want to do and you're like, I'm going to do that at our, and it just doesn't work. It takes, you know, it takes years of kind of building this culture and then the culture begins to produce that. That culture for us starts in not just how I preach, but it's in how we do baptisms. And we, we try to mix that mission feel into everything. Um, and how we commission our, you know, like the, the parent commissioning. Uh, we just, the campuses we've just built, um, we build our kids' areas like airports. Like it's, there's a, you know, like a, the, the main hall is a runway, and everything is like, you know, we end every service with you are sent. And uh, what did we just do the other day that was uh, pulled, that had all those missionaries? Um, 
Um, oh, yeah, yeah, our prayer times, video. We had a video. Yeah, we'll get missionaries to lead communion from overseas sometimes. You know, on the, So there's a lot of culture stuff there. But um, just to, full disclosure here, just so we know, um, one thing that's helped us is we are near a seminary, about 25 minutes from Southeastern Seminary. And um, so, so are many of you. Just note that. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you mean yeah, here? Okay. Know, yeah. Okay. And so about 40% of the people we send overseas, Todd, is that right? Uh, about 40%? No, less? Yeah, 28. So 28%. You know me, I'm always underestimating, Todd. Um, about 40% come from, our, or about 28% come from the seminary connection. We also have a lot of college students, which I mentioned earlier, and that makes up, a, and not every church has those two advantages. Um, but over time, it's just de- developed this kind of culture where people just are thinking about it. It's part of our missions. What We publish a, a little, we have 265 right now that are overseas. What? Two, see, again, underestimated. underestimated. 281 that are overseas. I'd say, what, 200 are those with the IMB? 185. So 185. Somebody, get ta- <laughs> Somebody get Todd a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start asking him the questions. So 185 with the International Mission Board. Um, uh, you know, we have a prayer book with them. They're part of, we encourage small groups to partner or adopt with one of them. Our best vision of mission trips is small groups going together on a mission trip to visit one of those. Um, so there's a lot of things that kind of have, uh, are, are, if you want a, a model for how to do small mission trips in a way that Lee, uh, Johnson Ferry is by far the best at that, we're, we're copying their playbook, so they're way ahead of us on that. Uh, but we think that these, these short-term mission trips can actually, I know they seem like a colossal waste of money, and I'll probably be right there with you, and I know sometimes they annoy the missionaries. Have you been a missionary? I can definitely tell you that's true. Um, but so we're trying to, 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 to mind that, but we also know that every single missionary we have out there right now that's permanent, all of them, it started with a short-term trip. And so it's – and people come back and they give a lot more because you start on my missions offerings and they're giving the things they see. Uh, so every dollar you spend on a mission trip, every minute you send, is going to multiply itself back to you. All right. I've asked you questions about uh, your leadership as the president of SBC and about your pastoral role. And I want to finish up with uh, two or three general questions about just some random leadership issues, okay? All right. Uh, first of all, you have a good social media presence. What – can le- leaders learn about using social media wisely? And how is social media helping us in the SBC, and how is it harming us? Uh, if it feels good, don't post it. That's kind of the bottom line rule, right? <laughs> um, I've got some amazing. And you're like, are you fake J.D. Greer? I mean, who's going to say, right? Because if you are going to have a, a good account that where you post everything you feel, um, give it to the Babylon Bee over here. Um, so, uh, you know, I have had to realize that that social media is just not a place for me to engage in anything substantive. Um, it's not the place to go back and forth with anybody. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, wink, wink, but sort of serious. Like, if I ever feel like, aha, I just posted that, that boom, you know, it's just like that was wrong because it, and it's going to blow up. Um, so I, I think in general, I mean, let's even go beyond leaders. Let's just go to our people. Um, I mean, Facebook is a curse. Um, to church unity. Um, the unity we feel on Sunday is not felt throughout the week because of just the temperature at which people post things. Um, you know, I just, I tell them, like, I just, I only have so much platform. And uh, the little kind of line that I use with our congregation is, I might be wrong about global warming, but I'm not wrong about the gospel. And I don't want to let my post on the former keep people from hearing me on the latter. So I try to be very you know, thoughtful about, is this going to 
contribute to the to the purposes that God has given me. Billy Graham was really good at this. He was just ruthless when it came to what was going to clutter his platform when he had you know a few things to do. Not all of you are going to be called the exact same things as as me, but I would just say be thoughtful about it and realize it's a tool that you can use, but it shouldn't be the the main place that you 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 know air your grievances. How has it helped you, though, as a pastor and as a leader? How have you used it to your advantage? Well, I certainly learn about things real quickly. I mean, I, that's probably the best thing is I, I, you know, I learn what's who's speaking where, what's going on. I'm always following articles and links, and um, I follow people that I really like, and I follow a bunch of people I don't um, because I need to know what's being said. Um, I, I'm, I know this out here is like you're like, what are you even talking about? But uh, I, we live in a very liberal part of North Carolina. Uh, it'd probably be considered very conservative out here, um, but um, UNC Chapel Hill and Duke uh, right there. And so I, there's a lot of things that I'm kind of trying to follow because I need to read it in their words so that I can address it. I, I think that's its best purpose. Its best purpose is to kind of keep you connected to what is going on in, in your world. I think that's why, as I talked last week uh, or a couple weeks ago now in the convocation message about some of these issues, and one of the things I said is, you know, I, I read a news feed every day and I read news sources that are definitely not reporting a perspective that I want to hear. But I read Express. Yeah, well, that one too. <laughs> but uh, but I, I read them every day, same thing. Follow, pe- follow people, follow movements, and follow ideas that are not feeding into my, my narrative because I want to know what people are talking about. Okay. By the way, Badgers Press is great now, just for the record. Yeah, okay. Uh, here's another one for you. Uh, this, is, this, one, uh, this is the self-serving question here as we get to the end. Uh, man, you have a couple seminary degrees, including an earned uh, Ph.D., how has your seminary training helped you in ministry, and uh, why was it important to get formal training as a part of your preparation for ministry? Uh, a couple of different ways I'd answer that. If I were talking to a group of uh, college students that had just graduated trying to figure out whether or not they should go, I would say one of the best values is just to kind of give you time to grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that, that there's three or four years in learning kind of who you are and learning how to properly approach ministry. Um, I remember one time I went to a leadership conference with uh, where John Maxwell and Bill Hybels um, were, were leading this. And you know, Maxwell said that thing that by the time you're in your 30s, you need to kind of figure out like those two or three things you're good at and be doing only that. And so it was a Q&A time. And so I walked up to the mic and I was like, hey, and I introduced myself and I was like, I'm 20. One years old, and John Maxwell just cut me off. He was like, he's like, no, that's what I said applies to you. He said, because he says, you don't know what you're good at, and whatever you think you're good at, you're probably not. And, um, <laughs> and it was harsh to hear, um, but he was exactly right. If you'd asked me at 21 what I thought I could do, I mean, I might have gotten in the ballpark, but I, there was a bunch of stuff I thought. And it was sort of trial and error until I was about, th- you know, and, and I, I'm not talking about wildly different things, but I'm talking about missions um, and it, be more of a kind of a, a, a seminary professor, a evangelist, a youth pastor, a, you know, all this stuff. And, and over time, God reveals that. And it just takes some time to find your voice and to find what you're good at. And seminary is a great time to do that. Um, seminary, you've, you've heard it said that, you know, um, reading, you know, uh, makes a, a thoughtful man. Writing makes an exact man. Uh, in your Ph.D. especially, you have to do a lot of reading and writing in ways that, that force you to think out in disciplined ways that greatly benefit your people. I'm not in a place now where I teach a lot of seminary classes. Um, I'm kind of, uh, you know, the calling God has given me is to the common person, so to speak, which means I'm preaching, aiming at about an eighth or ninth grade level when I when I preach. But I don't consider one second of that PhD wasted because not only does it gives me the stuff, you know, the kind of the background of knowing 
um, what's behind, you know, what's going on. It also has just helped me in being able to articulate uh, things in a, in a in a way that I think is helpful. Um, out here, you know that I mean, Steve Jobs. What genius is simplicity on the other side of complexity? And so if you get the complexity, it actually helps you with the simplicity. Uh, so I, I really am not just saying this because you're a seminary president or because I'm at a seminary. I'm, I'm a humongous, humongous supporter of that. I realize you can just get trained at a church and, and get out there, but uh, there is a mental discipline that is necessary if you're going to be a great communicator and a great leader that, that, that um, only a seminary can provide. Man, great. All right, what else would you like to say to Gateway Seminary that I haven't asked you about today or what else is on your mind or your heart as president that you'd just like to say to us as we wrap it up? Well, yeah, just to wrap it up, I just want to say, I mean, thank you to you guys because um, you're not in the South and you represent the future of the SBC, if we're going to have a future, which I, you know, I think we are. Um, you're at a place where you've taken the faith handed down once for all to the saints and you've tried to say, what does this look like? And we're in many ways we, we have looked to you and we need to even more so. Um, because, like I said in the message earlier, um, that pie of kind of shared cultural Christianity that you can send out pastors basically to be chaplains for their community, um, that's just that's not the future of it, and this is the future of it. And so because you're out here, I mean, we've known for a long time that the best mission and church insights come from the mission field. On well, the same way, I would say the best insights into theological education and that kind of things are going to come from you, even giving you an advantage over some of the more traditional ones. So thank you for being here. Thank you for the way that you um, are leading and, and holding on to this. Thank you for just the energy. I mean, just today was great. I just feel very encouraged by the spirit that's here. So and thank you for your leadership, Dr. Thanks, Gorsh. Uh, J.D. Let's thank J.D. for coming our way. I want to thank all of you for being here today, especially those many of you pastors who've joined from the area. Uh, thank you for your faithful support for all that you do to make us strong here at the seminary. Uh, let's end by praying for J.D. and for just God's power to be evident in his life as he goes forward. Heavenly Father, thank you for J.D. Greer, and thank you for sending him our way today. Thank you for saving him, calling him into ministry leadership, placing him as pastor of the Summit Church, and giving him this responsibility as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you, Father, for all these honors you've given him and responsibilities you've placed on him. And now we pray in the name of Jesus that you will give him a deep awareness of the power of the Holy Spirit evident in him moment by moment and that the filling of the Holy Spirit will be evident through him as he preaches and teaches and counsels and leads and that people might be impressed not so much by him but by the fact that he submitted himself to you and that you are doing amazing, even miraculous things through him. We commit him to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. And thank you for being here. <laughs>